Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast, a podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and I'm going down PhD route again today. I've got a PhD from Tassie coming in to speak to me, Dr. Nathan Pitchford. Thanks for coming in and talking to me. Thanks very much for having me, Brent. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm always keen to get smart people such as yourself on the show, um, obviously keen to pick your brain and find out all your years of experience and all your years of research. Obviously, you've gone through a few of those topics over the journey, but for those that don't know you, can you give us a bit of a brief background of who you are? Yeah, no worries. I um, I come from a um, Bachelor of Exercise and Sports Science then went through honours and then um, did a Master of High Performance Sport and then obviously went on to do my PhD, um, which we can talk about in, in more detail. But along the way, I also worked um, as a personal trainer and then went into working in Australian Rules Football mostly as a strength and conditioning coach and then went from strength and conditioning to work in sports science and applied field sports science and strength coaching um, as well. In more recent years, since I've sort of finished my PhD and started working as an academic, I've worked more in the consulting space and done some sports science consulting, but I also am still actively engaged as a strength and conditioning coach in the private sector now. Okay. it's um, I'm always curious um, about people that are in team sports because um, it's obviously completely different space to my, my own background as a golf coach. I'm used to having that single person standing in Kind of view, which is obviously a bit simpler to be able to go through that that coaching side of things with regard to that that group situation. So, um, talk me through just before we get into your your study. You you're, you said you were a strength and conditioning coach in a football type situation. Can you talk me through how that worked and how that was set up for you? Well, I started off um, basically. I think you hear this a lot um, with people in the industry, but I sort of created a position for myself. Um, at a local TSL or state league footy club and um, just worked two days a week in the afternoon so players could come through and do their strength training um, in the gym with me before they went out onto the field. So just putting together some really basic um, programs for a wide range of positional athletes. So um, then, yeah, I was, I was fortunate enough to do, through my studies, some practical placement with AFL Tasmania working in their academy system and then actually ended up getting the the lead strength and conditioning coach role for the academy's pathway in Tasmania. Um, did that for two years and then um, my PhD was co-located with um, the Western Bulldogs in the AFL and I was working in a sports science sense with the, the AFL squad and I did some strength coaching with the VFL squad while I was there. So... In terms of how that all came about, it was sort of pretty organic and I sort of did my Cert 3. I wanted to work in the industry. I hadn't, I'd had a lot of experience personally um, being a soccer player um, in terms of I'd had exposure to strength and conditioning programs through my, my athletic pursuits. But then, yeah, I wanted to learn more about, about coaching and became frighteningly um, I became frighteningly aware that I wasn't going to make it as a professional athlete myself, <laughs> um, but I still loved, um, still loved sport and still love being engaged in in that. And um, the opportunities at the time in Tasmania were heavily in Australian rules football, so that's sort of of, of how it all came about and, and the pathway way I took. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious just quickly on your thoughts on on that type of pathway because it's the common one that you hear the person that plays sport it finds out that they aren't going to be successful at that that highest. Um, level of sport and then shifts into coaching. Is that something that you see as a good thing or a bad thing? I'm just curious on your thoughts on that just really quickly. 
I, th- I think it can have it can have benefits in your ability to relate to the athletes that you work with in terms of you can you know there's a difference between sympathy and empathy <laughs> um, and you can relate to them and you have shared experiences in some ways um, obviously I couldn't share experiences with the professional athletes I worked with because I was never professional and, and competing at that higher level um, but state level and you know amateur to, to semi-pro athletes I could relate to um, in terms of the demands that they're placed upon from combining their day-to-day work requirements with training requirements as well so I think that that can help in a lot of ways but at the same time some former athletes that become strength and conditioning coaches I think in the early stages of their careers if they do strength and conditioning in their sport that they're passionate about and have played in can often blur the lines between strength and conditioning coaching and tactical technical coaching and things like that and I'm not saying that you need to stay in your lane all the time but sometimes you know you need to appreciate your role within the performance department or the whole coaching staff as an entity and and really ensure that you're supporting the work of the the coaching staff from a technical and tactical perspective and you don't sort of start blurring the lines and, and giving your opinion on what you think the coaches should be doing and based on your experience and your preferences as an athlete um, I, I've seen that with with younger coaches but um to to be fair i did most of my early work when i was younger in australian rules football um and i I was a soccer player so i didn't have personally feel like i had that problem i had no right to comment on the the tactics and technical stuff within the footy department so um there wasn't something i felt that i struggled with but i have seen it in in other circumstances yeah there's some pretty cool comments there and it's probably a, a chat for a whole new podcast but about how high do you have to be as a as a player to be able to coach that level and um, I'm of the opinion that coaching and playing are two different skills and you can be a good coach where having played at that highest um, highest standard so to speak but there's certainly other people around that argue the other point that you need to have that experience in that space before you can coach it so it's um it's, it's a, it'll be a pretty cool conversation we'll have to, we'll have to do some sort of panel chat i think with with that one yeah absolutely mate it, it, t- it takes a village you know to, to raise an athlete and i think a, a combination of those exposures within a coaching group are what's going to result in the best outcomes in terms of you're going to have some fantastic coaches who weren't great athletes or players of that sport and then you're going to have some of the coaching group who are legends of the game whose experiences and knowledge are absolutely invaluable and unteachable from a coaching course coaching education perspective and so being able to balance those i, I think to me is, is what makes a good coaching team and, and will result in the best success but again for another time maybe <laughs> it is no it certainly makes sense but i'm curious again this is a question i ask all these team sport coaches and team sport people how the hell do you deal with a squad of 40 odd players essentially doing personalized training programs um especially with in your field because you can hurt some people if they're doing the wrong thing. Um, how do you deal with that and how do you set your programs up so each person gets the right type of training? Yeah, look, it, it can be a real juggling act at times um, and you've got to throw into the mix, obviously, the periodization within the season. Um, personally, I've always tried to take a, a long-term athlete development focus to, to the work that I do and and realize that although there's an end point where you want your athlete to be, in reality, they're not going to get there in two weeks um, and you've got to be really careful and considered with your planning. Um, it, it can be a real juggling act getting, you know, 40-odd players to, to do their programs and all have individual spins to it. I think um, 
a systems-based approach is probably the best way of, of attacking it in that the sport itself has some common movement patterns and common um, energy system demands. Those demands are tweaked depending on what position you're in and they're tweaked further depending on the individual characteristics of that athlete. So you sort of start with a skeleton and then you start modifying the the appendices off that skeleton based on, yeah, the positional demands and the individual athlete demands. And that might be from an injury history perspective or it could be um, from just a movement quality and movement pattern perspective of that individual. Um, so everyone sort of does something that's similar in regards to the actual core requirements of the program, but sometimes the exercises it utilise or the prescription that they're exposed to can differ depending on their positional and individual needs. And that systems-based approach in sort of starting with the big rocks and then throwing in the smaller rocks and then filling it with sand is is usually the the programming approach I take with, with large groups of athletes. That's really cool. Um, how do you track their progression through those programs as well? Because, again, you've got a big, large group of players. Um, I'm assuming there'll be a whole heap of self-reporting going on. But I would, I would assume it'd be quite easy for someone to slip through the cracks sometimes. So how do you how do you keep track of these athletes? I'm, I've always been a big fan of testing. Um, I, I enjoy seeing the – especially within team sports environments, if, if you get guys going through 3RM or 1RM testing, depending on their capabilities – you, you see such a buzz around the group. There's a lot of energy. They're, they're encouraging each other. And it gives you some really good information on the actual capacities from a strength perspective. Um, I'm, I'm speaking here in regards to how they're improving throughout the year. We've utilized and a system I've utilized previously, and this depends on technology and your access to funding for technology. Um, we've used, I've used velocity-based training with some good success previously um, to not only track and measure individuals' improvements in certain movement patterns, but also to um, as, as a monitoring tool in order to determine whether or not you're chasing numbers in the gym that day. Um, it, it can be a really useful tool for both. Um, and it gives you the capability to, you know, respond in a real time to the, the neuromuscular or the physiological status of the athlete to ensure that you're training them in an appropriate zone to ensure that you're still getting adaptation without unnecessary fatigue or risk. So I, I like testing. Um, I, I love using technology. It's not something I actually have a lot of access to now um, in, in the private sector work that I'm doing, um, you know, a lot smaller scale, um, given it's not my full-time role. Um, but we, we use regular testing still. Um, whether that be strength testing or um, endurance testing or power testing and things like that from more basic um, versions and iterations of power tests. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy monitoring and keeping keeping touch with athletes across their, their developmental span. From a coaching perspective, how do you deal with those those players that say, no, nah, I'm not doing this, this is not for me? Um, I'm just curious because obviously as a, as a sport coach myself, you always get pushback sometimes from players that if you change something that doesn't click straight away, for example, they, they push back. So how do you deal with those players that say, no, nah, this is not for me, I'm, I'm not doing this? Yeah, the, the art of coaching to, to steal, I think, the, the title of Brett Bartholomew's book, um, it's it's tricky. It's um. Some sometimes you get athletes who just do whatever you say. They just eat it up. They soak it up. And then you get the other guys who, you know, they, they go through phases where they're just not interested. They, they might be in bad form. They have bigger issues to worry about. In the team sport environment where performance is key and you've got to win games on a weekly basis, if they're coming in, they've got a shit attitude and they don't want to do the testing or, and they've got focus on somewhere else and you know that they're struggling with their form, 
you're not going to add additional stress to them and, and sort of stand over them and be like, no, you have to do it. It's it's not going to benefit their performance at the end of the day. Um, if you keep accurate records of your strength training programs, like we use currently use Google Sheets to to track our athletes across the and they put their weights in as they as they're going along the weeks. If you notice that you know they started off at one weight in week one and we're in week six and their weight's gone up for the same number of reps and you're watching that training and you know it's still good quality then there's obvious adaptation and if they refuse the strength test perspective then so be it you're still seeing positive adaptation and you can still quantify that in a way by extrapolating if that's a five you know if that's a five rep max or a five rep set you can extrapolate that and estimate some kind of one rm improvement if you need to um but you can still see progress in so many other ways you know other than the number that they're putting out. Just just keeping on that coaching theme for a second, because I'm curious about your your take on this. Where do you draw the line, or what kind of tweaks to your coaching do you do for that player that's performing on the field, for example, but are not doing what you would prefer them to be doing in the gym and off the field? Do you draw? Obviously, it would get to a point where you'd have to say cut it off and say no, you have to start doing this stuff. But how do you deal with that player who's skillful on the field and it's performing but isn't doing the training off the field? Yeah, great question. That it's, it's something I have been exposed to in the past, and it's it's a really tricky balance. Um, I don't I don't know if there's a one size fits all approach to be honest. And I know that's a bit of a cop out and sitting on the fence a little bit. Um, but every group that you work with, if you're if you you know switch back to the team sport environment, every group has a set of standards. They have a culture. They have behaviours that they uh, value and that they uphold within their group. And sometimes it's not your responsibility to step in and encroach on those. And it's it's usually the role of leaders within the group. Um, so that's often one way you can go about it. You can engage the leadership group and say, look, I'm noticing that this athlete is sort of maybe not reaching the the standards that you guys have set for yourselves. Is that And you can engage that conversation. Say, is that something you want me to address or is that something you're happy to discuss with them? Um, and then it, then it becomes more of a, a group-based conversation. Um, sometimes I try to modify my approach to make it more fun to make it more engaging um, and even for and this isn't just for for young athletes this this can be for adult athletes as well is it it can be a real grind sometimes the professional athlete life um doing it day in day out and people expecting the absolute best of you every minute of every day it can be really draining for some guys um and so trying to bring the enjoyment back and maybe modifying again you know talking about that core structure of a program modifying the exercise prescription to have a different approach than just you know barbells and and weight plates you know it's making it more more engaging and and trying to really relate the exercises to the movement demands of the sport so some guys really like the the pure weight stuff other guys really need it they really need it to be obvious how it links to their performance so you can start in in that way sometimes and, and modifying your prescription to really highlight its link to movement patterns and, and movement outcomes on the field. And then if that doesn't work, that might be where you start introducing some some not heavy-handed tactics. That's a, that's a wrong term. But um, some some more direct feedback and saying like, hey, mate, I need more from you because you, you're sort of starting to drop away. And hence why accurate record keeping and data and numbers helps you show that. If you can see a, a decline in the numbers, then you can actually engage that conversation and provide your evidence. And But again, the psychology of them saying, yeah, I'm playing pretty well though. That's a really tricky barrier to overcome and it, it takes a lot of work and you'll get it wrong 
like I've got it wrong before with my approach to certain things and you'll get it wrong and you'll learn from from where you've made your mistakes and you'll get better at it. This kind of heads into my question now and hopefully you don't cop this too much these days because obviously things are changing. But coaches, now coaches out there these days should be over the fact that strength and conditioning should be part of any sort of training. Um, I would have thought particularly early on in your career you got some pushback for some coaches. Um, how did you deal with that? Oh, look, I was – I was incredibly fortunate with the, the first environment that I worked with in a full in, worked in in a full time aspect. The head coach at the time he was um, he was a, he was old school in his approach in terms of he valued fitness very very highly. Um, he he had no pushback on conditioning work. He had no pushback on gym work or anything like that. Um, I was I was extremely fortunate to work with a coach who had he didn't just see because the game was going through a transition at the time where. Players were getting, and you see this swings and roundabouts all the time, but players go through a period of getting drafted based purely on their technical abilities. And even if they're okay athletes or not that greater athlete, they'll still get drafted. Whereas a while ago, they went through a phase of just drafting athletes and saying, we can we can make these guys good footy players. And so we were going through a period where we were having to really highly maintain the fitness levels of the players that we we're working with. and. Being from Tassie, we've got a smaller talent pool. Um, so our high-end guys, we were extremely fortunate. We had a great draft year in, in the years that I was working there. Um, but we had a, we have a small talent pool, so we've got to keep our top-end guys really, really high level and keep up with you know Vic. And you know you go to Victoria, you're almost guaranteed to get drafted in a way <laughs> if you make some of their 18 squads and, and, and get to the national championships. But... Um, I, I haven't. I didn't have to deal with pushback in that regard very much. Um, and then when I moved into the AFL and VFL environment, the pushback wasn't directed at a person in my position. It was directed more so at our high performance managers and our lead strength and conditioning coaches in the AFL environment, which obviously flowed down to us. But it, it wasn't something I had to directly engage with in, in that professional environment. Just a, a point you brought up there, and we've spoken about talent ID on this podcast, and I was just listening to One Track Mind from VU, Sam Robertson's podcast last week about talent ID, and mm-hmm. it is a challenging space. And you think, okay, can you just, as you said, can you just draft a person who's uh, just an, a, a super athlete and teach them the skills in football? And um, it, it's a bit different in golf because it's a bit more of a skill-heavy sport as opposed to to football but there's certainly as you said there was certainly a period of time where they were just drafting those type of those type of people but there's a whole conversation there to be had about talent ID as well and and, and look you know in in no way am I inferring that some horrible AFL players are out there that are just good athletes they're all brilliant footy players (laughs) you know what I mean it's just degrees of brilliant I think Um, to, to clarify my statement a bit more I think they they went for the brilliant footy players who were also good athletes over the the very very brilliant guys who who weren't great athletes for a period but and then that that pendulum swung and they were preferring the good technical skills even if there was a guy who was a similar ability and you know or a little less ability but a better athlete they'd take the more skillful and that swing and roundabout happens all the time but yeah in, in no way am i inferring that any really poor afl players are, have, have been drafted but no, like, all again good. sam's sam's an absolute jet and um he's extremely knowledgeable in that area um i was fortunate enough to work under sam at the, at the western bulldogs and yeah he, he's a very very knowledgeable person so I'd, I'd take his advice on that topic no that's all cool um just on, on that coaches pushing back again um mm-hmm. okay yeah you said you had a, a coach who was 
big on keeping them conditioned. So how did you go in that situation where they've had a crappy game on the weekend, they've played ordinary, the coach just wants to get them into training and send them on a 10K run and get them in there and train them over hard, so to speak, through the week as opposed to the recovery-based stuff that they should be doing prior to the round coming up. So did you come across that situation at all? Um, yeah, look, punishment running is, is something that still exists. As, as ugly as it is as a concept, it still exists um, in, in all sports, both across uh, you know Australian rules football and in, in the work that I've done in soccer as well. Um, yeah, look, it's it's difficult. I, I, I'm always going to – I've always engaged in conversations and coaches said, like, we need to – you know, I need to smash them this week. And you sort of say, okay, like, why? He said, they didn't play well. I'm saying, well, the physical data is not saying that they didn't move well, though. So I'd rather you, I'd I would always offer first if they he wasn't happy with their technical performance and their the outcome I'd say well look we can scrap conditioning this week you know or you can have more time for for drills if you like because one of my roles was to obviously plan the training loads and and put proportions of training into different elements um, and I said look if you need more time on the track to go slow and develop these elements, then I can change our, our training prescription in other areas to, to help counteract that if that's what you'd really want. If that's what you actually need, then I'm happy to do that. And that's an ongoing process week in, week out in any professional environment is responding to what the coach actually needs from the group and what proportion of time needs to be assigned to the different elements of training. Um, and your role is, you know, if you're the lead physical performance or high performance or S&C coach is adapting the training plan to ensure that the coach gets what he needs, but also to ensure that the athletes are being serviced in the, you know, in the most optimal way. Um, so like I would always offer that and say, look, if you need more technical time, go for it. I'll, I'll adapt their, I'll change their, one of their gym sessions into a, a different type of session to get more cardiovascular endurance work in as opposed to, to strength work in. Um, but if he said, no, I want to not interested, I still want to physically test them. Um, I'd always, we had a suite. I was fortunate enough that we developed a suite of training drills that were conditioning based. Um, and then we also had, conditioning specific drills without balls as well and I'd, I'd offer say let's let's add one of these in um and we had a whole categorization system that's you know obviously the the minute details are, are not relevant for here but um I, I would offer those instead of saying yeah chuck them on a road run um because I, again i was fortunate enough that i think the coach i was working with at that time he was he was highly aware that if we just chucked if we took guys from a footy environment and threw them out into a long distance road run we'd have a lot of we'd have a lot of issues come Saturday physically, um, just the different surface, the different training regime, et cetera. Um, for young, sensitive athletes, we, we would have had a lot of issues and he was fairly aware of that as well. So I, I was very fortunate in that environment. Sounds, sounds good. Sounds really good. Mm -hmm. So let's get into your research. Um, mm -hmm. You were put on to me by a frequent guest on the podcast, Scotty Williams, has mm -hmm. come in and he put me on to you as a contact and you were involved in the sleep study that you did uh, can you talk me through what that was all about? Yeah, you're testing my memory now with Scott's specific study. Uh, obviously, Scott was looking at the, the sleep habits and behaviours of some of his golfers that he's been working with across competition periods um, to see whether or not, you know, high-level golfers had different sleep habits and behaviours in and around competition compared to those those amateur or lower-level golfers. Um, and so that's that's been a project that I've, I've worked on with Scott in the past, which was really, really interesting. I like the applied stuff personally. 
Um, my, my PhD or my research journey started with an honours degree here at the um, University of Tasmania. Um, and I actually investigated the effects of caffeine on endurance performance. Um, that was a, an opportunity that I, I took to get good lab experience and get good experience collecting data because that is a skill um, that takes a lot of learning. Um, and then my PhD was in and around the sleep behaviours and the effects of actually, we actually were fortunate enough to give people more sleep. <laughs> and oh, see if yeah, see if increasing sleep duration influenced their physical recovery after strenuous exercise. Um, and as part of my role with the Bulldogs was working on categorizing and actually investigating the sleep behaviors of our guys when they traveled, when we had short breaks, when we had longer breaks, if we had high training load weeks versus low training load weeks, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, in between different phases of the season and seeing whether or not there were, you know, modifications that players made and what interventions that we we could put in place to help manage and help create more consistent sleep behaviours within the athletes that we're working with. It's just a it's a it's a cool space and it's probably something that hasn't been studied much at all. I'm I'm assuming over the over the years. And it's something as a as a golfer personally, when I was trying to play tournaments and tour events a long, long time ago now. But um, travelling from hotel to hotel, week to week um, as opposed to staying at home, sleep was a challenge for me. I struggled to sleep in strange beds and that kind of stuff. And um, I'm curious about what you found with with sports people and that f- fact that they they're possibly travelling on the road and sleeping in different setups every week. Um, was that a, a huge problem for some people? For some, yeah, absolutely. Some guys, funnily enough, with family commitments and and small children and things like that, some guys slept better on the road than they did at home. Um, and that that's not an unusual occurrence to, to happen. The the sort of middle aged, and I talk about this in a professional athlete sense. So the middle aged, you know, the early twenties to mid twenties sort of space. Those guys tended to have some sleep disturbances when they um, slept in different sleeping environments. Um, sometimes that could be because they were sharing rooms with with somebody else who didn't share the same sleep behaviours as them, um, which was something you can obviously modify and. Um, you could often offer them the opportunity to sleep in individual rooms or if they're happy to share, so you gave them that flexibility. Um, the most common and easily transportable piece of bedding that we could utilise was people taking their own pillows. Um, but as an extension to that, it's actually given us some education on how to, what type of actual bedding do you buy that's actually quality and suitable for you, um, especially athlete populations. I know that in rugby league, rugby union, um, athletes neck circumference and big bigger guys often are more likely to sl- suffer from sleep apnea and things like that um, so ensuring that they have appropriate treatment um, and bedding that helps minimize those occurrences uh, during their sleep um, that's not research I've done as um, other research from the field but um, yeah we, we just try to give them habits um, and focus on sleep hygiene and sleep behaviors and in terms of ensuring that you had a consistent routine leading into your sleep period was likely to have the greatest um, outcomes and improvements on your the resultant sleep that you obtained. And um, there's been some some research on that um, through Brisbane Broncos and uh, JP Kaya. He um, did some research during his PhD in that environment looking at the effects of sleep hygiene education and educating guys on, well, this is what is optimal in terms of behavior leading into your sleep this is the optimal environment to facilitate sleep and looking at whether or not that actually improved it and it it appeared to have some positive effects which was really good how much of an impact did that did say poor sleep quality have on performance and was there a cutoff line where you could you could get a 
away with some sort of uh, worse sleep pattern, so to speak, and then still perform? Or was it just like just straight out cut and dried? If you if you couldn't get what you got when you're at home, you were always going to struggle. Oh, it's it's so multifaceted and it is so individualized. We had some guys who were just animals. They went to bed at the same time every day and, and every got up same time every morning, no matter what. Um, I always think of athletes are the great. Uh, the the thing that make good athletes great is their ability to adapt to different environments and to different challenges. From what we can tell through the literature, most athletes can handle a night of bad sleep. If they sleep like shit between before a major competition, they can usually handle that and, and cope with that, and they have additional coping mechanisms and a dish, a, an ability to still have a high quality performance outcome regardless of some you know poor preparation or poor sleep the night before so a one-off bad night sleep doesn't tend to detrimentally impact physical performance a great deal because that you know athletes can handle with that and that's in, in athlete populations the results are a little bit different in, in just healthy normal populations the bad stuff comes from um, inconsistent sleep schedules where their body's natural hormonal cycle doesn't get the opportunity to function normally. You know, we release growth hormone um, and the majority of our growth hormone in the first four hours of sleep. And so if you're messing with the timing of that and, you know, you're sleeping with the lights on, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that stimulus can help suppress some of the growth hormone secretion and reduce the amount of slow wave sleep we get in the first half of the night. And doing that on a regular basis, that's what leads to, I guess, not maximizing training adaptations, um, impaired recovery, um, and then you have the cognitive side effects as well. And that seems to be where, um, man, you see it a lot in driving and shift work research in terms of that um, prolonged sleep restriction and short sleep period has a decaying effect on cognitive function and it's sort of additive until it gets to a certain point where cognitive function is is, is hugely declined and that's where decision-making with athlete populations comes into it. It's concentration with, with athletes that comes into it um, and all that type of thing. So usually one night, they can usually handle and they can adapt to it. And you've got things like caffeine that have been shown to improve vigilance, improve, you know, psychomotor performance. Um, and caffeine is, you know, there's still meta-analyses and systematic reviews coming out now showing the the benefits of caffeine on physical performance, um, especially in, a, in endurance context. Um, so, you know, where most athletes are able to adapt when it's just one exposure, but it's that prolonged repeated poor behaviours or poor um habits and sleep hygiene that you see the detriment detrimental effects on performance it's something that's always intrigued me and it's not something that i've got any expertise in because golf isn't in this space but olympic sports where they train for four years essentially in their own environment and then go to this one-off competition and they're in what is essentially a, a school camp type environment where they're all sleeping in similar areas and they're partying and there's all sorts of things going on that just doesn't make any any sense to me i was just curious what you what you thought about that oh it's it's, it's ext- extremely impressive isn't it you know that these guys can can turn up and and do this kind of stuff and you know perform at their peak with all the expectations placed on them with all the pressure that's put on them you know you've got as you said it's it's often not just one four-year cycle that they've, they've just done you know some of these guys have been training for for certain events for you know 
a decade or so and this is their opportunity to show how good they are so it's an extremely stressful environment and you've got to give credit to the the support staff that that take these olympic teams away um it's a fascinating environment um i think it's actually i'm not sure if this will continue but obviously with recent olympics you were basically there for your event period and then you're out and that was obviously because of covid guidelines and, and to try and reduce the transmission of covid within the olympic villages but I, I think it's like some of the changes we've seen with COVID in our, in our normal community, our normal day-to-day life, that might be a change that, that continues in terms of you just turn up for your comp, your, your period, and then you're gone. Once, you're, once your competition's out, you're on the flight the next day, you're going home because there's no need for you to be in that environment anymore rather than hanging around and doing the partying and, and you know, waiting to the closing ceremony and interfering with the preparations because – and preparations and performances of other athletes in different competitions in different sports because you know you, you could have your whole heat medal etc done in the first week and someone hasn't even started their heats for another two weeks you know so I, I think that could be a positive potentially um as long as you know obviously the environmental constraints in and around heat exposure and things like that there is a beneficial acclimation period that, that athletes would want to go through before their event um so that would obviously mean them getting there a bit early but yeah, it's it's a fascinating environment. And I've I've never been exposed to to working with uh, the Olympics um, in that sense. So it would be really interesting to to see, um, yeah, how that goes. But I know that Shona Housen has done some recent research looking at the sleep habits of athletes during the the um, Rio Olympics as well. Um, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see what what what's come from that. If there's any Olympic coaches out there tuning in that want to come on the podcast, hit me up. I would love to love to get you on the chat. Because, you, you, again, as you said, you, you hear all the stories, like the swimmers who essentially competed and completed after week one and then they're hanging around partying while the, the track and field guys haven't even started yet. So mm. it must be a challenging space for, for those ones that are competing in the second week of those type of games. Yeah, definitely. So talk me through where you're – Research is headed now. I saw a couple of topics that piqued my interest when I was going through your bio. So t- talk me about some of the topics you're studying now and researching. Um, yeah, so uh, now working in, in academia and in a balanced academic position, I've got sort of the balance between teaching and lecturing demands, but also the the, the research opportunities. Um, still trying to stay engaged in the sleep space. We've recently done a project looking at and comparing the sleep behaviours and habits of professional to amateur athletes, um, or so even social athletes, we've got a, a few of those on the, on the books, and we're we're looking at that type of work now to see whether or not there's a big difference between the behaviours and the attitudes towards sleep. Um, there there appears to be, funnily enough. Um, so it's no huge surprise, um, but we're in the, the stages of getting that work up and properly analysed and, and published. Um, also engaged in the strength and conditioning space. I have a PhD student, um, TJ Peters, who's working at a, a school here. Um, he's a strength and conditioning coach at the school, working their athlete development pathways. But he's also investigating, um, I guess, the the need to better manage and monitor the training loads that our adolescent athletes are doing. Um, and I don't use the term student athletes because student athletes is a confusing term between America and Australia. Because student athletes in America are college, university age, whereas student athletes in Australia are sort of usually under the age of eighteen, from in that sense of the term. So, um, our adolescent athletes seem to be doing multiple sports, huge training volumes, and we still seem to be managing them based on the guidelines and 
prescription principles that we've learnt through adult populations and and often in professional or semi-professional environments. So we're looking at how can we better manage and monitor the training loads of those adolescents to ensure that they're still achieving good performances, but we're not exposing them to unnecessary risk, um, which is already heightened during the the developmental period anyway. That must be a really challenging space because I see my my son's sporting teams, and he's quite quite a tall kid for his age. You see the other kids in the team that are that are smaller and haven't haven't grown as much, and then you've got the gap between boys and girls as well so how do you how do you set that up and set up some sort of guidelines that are going to be some sort of consistency across that type of type of group of people must be a real challenge yeah and look and again you know we've mentioned sam robertson and and his influence on and and work in that talent id space and things like that that's it's a hugely complex uh topic but some of the initial findings that we've got are indicating that it's not necessarily, um, and we, you know, we've looked at adolescent athletes who are state or national level versus those guys who are just social as well. And it, there's not a lot of difference in a lot of the anthropometric data that we're getting in terms of heights, weights, and body compositions and things like that during this adolescent period. It, it really is their, their physical capabilities. You've got guys with similar anthropometrics that have vastly different um, physical outputs and physical capabilities. Um, and so, it might not be that you look at the the uh, physical look or the physical appearance or the physical characteristics from an anthropometric perspective to help identify talent. It it could be all about the the physiological and the the capabilities of them. So I think that might help change some of the the monitoring that that we do in adolescent populations and how much stress we place on you know things like body composition for a fourteen year old in most sports. I mean, it's been something that I've been exposed to in the past and, you know, I've, I've ran skinfold testing of, of adolescent athletes before and, you know, my, I was obviously probably you know, getting close to nine, ten years ago now and my, the importance I'd place on it now probably would be nowhere near as, as much as what we used to place on it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting space um, and we're fortunate enough to be embedded in a school environment that has really good athlete development programs. And so we're actually capable of collecting GPS training data, strength training data, and and, and quite a lot of information from this particular school. Um, and that's been hugely beneficial to helping us better understand the training demands and, and the, the needs of those athletes so far. So it's a, it's a really exciting project that's, yeah, still going. It certainly is a hard space. And just to touch quickly on, the, on that skin fold testing and stuff like that, if you're doing that with teenage children um just the the psych issues that might come up in that by doing that with a with a 14 year old kid um yeah yeah really tough yeah especially and unfortunately especially in the female population um female adolescent athletes tend to have more body image and eating disorder issues um and so i've i've worked or consulted at environments where they've done you know, amateur environments or sort of semi-pro environments where resources are poor. So the coaches got them to stand on bioelectrical impedance scales and and tried to get an indication of, of body composition from those results. And there've been some horrific feedback to the athlete about what they need to do and how they need to be in order to to compete in that sport. And, you know, I, I, I'm pretty confident and I'm you know, no expert on, on body composition and anthropometrics, but I'm not aware of a whole heap of data that suggests that the body composition of a 14 to 16 year old female athlete playing in amateur sport actually has a huge bearing on their performance 
Um, and so that's why I struggle with a lot as well. We, we often see in these environments testing that doesn't actually link to performance. Um, might link to health sometimes, but if it, it, it's, a, it's a real battle, especially in that, that adolescent female population. Okay, I'm curious on your, on your thoughts on this. So if I've got a, a son myself who plays just about every sport in the world, um, apart from golf, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> he plays all different sports out there, which is great for him. And from a coaching perspective, it's great that they play different sports because there's crossover patterns, there's, there's skills that they pick up doing something that, that translate into other sports. So I encourage him to play other sports. How do you... What advice for coaches out there with training loads with regards to someone who might be doing, say, football, for example, and also, say, cricket in the off-season or soccer and football in the, in, the, in the same season? Those type of sports are going to require different types of training. Um, so advice for coaches in that situation? Yeah, look, it's, it's very difficult to – I guess it depends on what context you're working with that athlete. If, if you're the, the strength and conditioning coach for the football team, then it is important to understand the other external training load demands that that athlete has – um, and at different times of the week as well in particular because your within-week training periodization for the footy club might not match what they're doing at cricket. They might have a heavy load later in the week and you might be doing heavy loads early in the week and then your athlete's just constantly working in high-intensity zones. Um, so I guess it's an understanding of, of the, the periodization within the week for that athlete as well. Um, Look, the, the best advice I can give is to, to be able to be flexible and, and adaptable for that athlete. If they turn up and you've got a big session planned and they turn up and they're wrecked, you're not going to get the – for starters, you're going to expose them to increased injury risk if you force them to go through that session in a fatigued state. You're also not going to get the metabolic or physiological adaptations that you're aiming for because, A, they either can't achieve the intensities that you need them to achieve to get that said specific metabolic or physiological adaptation out of them, um, or they're actually going to be, you know, their heart rate's going to be very, very high compared to what their actual physical output is or their effort, their RPE is going to be really high compared to what their physical output is. So therefore, suggesting that their body's actually working in a different metabolic zone than what you're intending so they might be working too hard and getting different adaptations or they can't achieve the intensities and therefore getting different adaptations to what you're aiming for so the the need and the ability to be flexible in the demands that you place on the athletes and being responsive to their status on a day-to-day and and thinking on your feet that doesn't come easily it it comes with exposure and it, it comes with experience and as i said there are times where you'll probably get it wrong um but that ability to think on your feet, be adaptable, be flexible to the needs of the athlete at that given session or time. And it's something that I think that I probably struggle with as a young strength and conditioning coach and you see it now is that you spend all this time writing this perfect program and then someone turns up and they're a little bit sore, you know, the calf's a bit niggly or, you know, they've got an ongoing hamstring complaint. You're like, oh, but my session, you know, like I want to do this session. This is what I had planned. And you've got to be willing to go, okay, this is what we had planned. But if, if that's not appropriate, Let's do this. And I think that's something that, that comes with exposure and time. But that would be my advice is that adaptability and, and flexibility in your training prescription to suit the status of the athlete when they are in those competing um, sporting environments. I think that's really cool. And I, I'm hearing 
communication out of that as well, just being able to talk to the, the, the kids in front of you and talk to the players you've got in your side um, and talking to other coaches in other sports and just being conscious of the fact that they might be doing a certain thing and you have to take that into consideration when you're when you're, you're doing your own coaching program. So Definitely, yeah. Really cool advice. Um, okay, so I'm going to throw a hard question at you now. So they've all been easy ones so far. <laughs> um, as coaches, you're experiencing in – with coaches over over your years of experience, what are we doing well at the moment? And then we'll get to stuff that we can improve on. But in your experience as a strength and conditioning coach and just being around high-performance coaches in general, what are we doing well? I think in general, most coaches and as an industry, we and I've, I've used this analogy before because it is one that I, I like in terms of the big rocks. I think on the whole, most of my experiences and the work that I've seen and working with different coaches they get the big rocks right you get the basics right and i think that's what we're doing really well um as as an industry i I think we're we're doing a good job from an education perspective um from a training perspective and from a um, coach networking i think that's been something that's exploded um across the world but in, in australia particularly lately with the introduction of internship programs and and coach mentorship programs and things like that we're sharing information really well and between environments and getting the big rocks of the programs right and sort of getting the basics down pat now, I think. Um, that's been my experience. There aren't too many environments that I've worked in and walked into and gone, geez, they're not even doing the basics. You know what I mean? It's very rare that I would see that. So, uh, and, that, and it sounds like such a cop-out and it sounds like, well, of course they get the basics right. It's the easy stuff. But in environments outside of sport, the big rocks often get ignored for what's flashy and what's cool. And um, I think in Australia in particular, I'm put that asterisk on it, in Australia in particular, we're getting the big rocks right and we're doing the basics well. And I think that's what gives athletes and the general population the best platform from with which to pr- improve and um, and develop is is getting the basics right and doing them doing the basics really well as well. Do you think that that's because that – information is so much more out there these days it's so much easier to find it as opposed to in the past maybe you had to go and find it yourself whereas these days it's all at a, at a click of a keyboard isn't it essentially these days yeah, but it's a, it can be a curse yeah, true. <laughs> yeah it can be a real curse you know the the ease within which we get information doesn't necessarily that information's been well vetted or has good evidence base um so what I have actually experienced and what I'm witnessing now is places like Athletes Authority with Lockie Wilmot and guys like the Rad Centre out in Ballarat with Chris Radford, um, those types of environments that are doing internship programs, they're giving back to the younger strength and conditioning communities. They're, they're being willing to open their doors and say, guys, these are the mistakes I made and here's the information I'm giving you so you don't make the same mistakes. These types of environments and some of the good people we have in the strength and conditioning community in Australia at the minute, they're can be the reason as, as to why I think we're getting the basics right and we're doing the, the simple stuff really well and we're getting good outcomes from it is because they're being willing to open up the door and providing information that has been well investigated, well vetted, and it's accurate. I think, yeah, there, there are dangers in having information at our fingertips a lot of the time in terms of the context within which somebody might do an exercise does not come across in a 12 second Instagram post the context is totally lost they could be doing that exercise with that athlete for that reason because they've got this training history and then you go that's a cool exercise that works on posterior chain I'll do that with my athlete who's totally different sport different age 
different training age, different training experience, et cetera. And it's just not applicable in that context. So I think that can often get lost sometimes. And that certainly is a big problem in all sports coaching, I think, is there's so much of the, you know, I'll, I'll train you the same way that I did it when I was a player or I was a coach and this is how my coach trained me and it worked for me, so I'm going to pass that on to you as a coach. So that's certainly a huge problem. I think more and more in team sports, those guys aren't getting very far. They, they're local coaches and they're, they're lower league coaches, but the professional level, those coaches I don't think are getting as much traction, um, particularly like in Australia. Um, as what they used to. I think they still get a lot of traction. You know, in sports like soccer, that is still a, a big thing, um, especially in international environments. But I think those coaches aren't getting as higher up the chain as what they used to now, I don't think. I think that's been a really positive shift. It's challenging, though, because you could argue the point that those that those coaches are still getting a toehold in that kids in that junior space, which is arguably the most important space. Because um, as I keep trying to tell all the sporting clubs I'm involved with, we're not trying to build the next superstar we're trying to build the people that are going to be involved with the sport for the rest of their lives as volunteers and as coaches and as parents in that in that space moving forward so hugely challenging space to be involved with definitely yeah okay now it's time for the shotgun you can get get it all fired up what are we doing badly as coaches and how can we improve wow yeah okay look i i would I would argue that there still are some not very inclusive environments um, and there, there's a lot of – there can be in a unnecessary competition between environments um, in the private sector in particular, but you can understand that because everyone's trying to grow a business and, and do that type of thing. Um, well, that's a, it's a really, really good question. I mean, I don't ever think the things that we do poorly are – by intent <laughs> either you know you don't deliberately try to do something something not well um i still think we need to better understand the effects of concussion in our sports um and the implications that that has for training and the implications that concussion has on training adaptation um both acute and chronically and how we can better manage it um, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of any ongoing concussion research. It's, it's such a, a tragic thing where you see players that are unable to return to sport because of concussion. It's, 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 um, it's hugely sad. And I, I still think there is a stigma that it's never as bad as what the person says it is. Like, and I still think coaches are guilty of that. Of sort of going like, oh, you got concussed two weeks ago. Like, come on, mate. Like, let's get on with it now. You know, I still think there is a bit of that out there and I still think that needs to be removed from, from our, our thinking and our approach to coaching. Um, so that's probably one area that I'd love to see more and more work done um, in concussion. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Does super that stigma question. come from the fact that it seems to be like it, it, people that get concussed, it seems to be a certain type of person or a certain player that will have it and get it consistently. So does that stigma come from, oh, it's the same bloke again, he's hurt himself again, what's going on here? I think so at times, but the guys with repeat concussions are usually the guys who are more fearless. Um, so in, initially, and that's, uh, I guess that's it's not always the way because sometimes with, if you're suffering the same injury over and over again, is it because you're doing something incorrectly or is it just purely the, the innate demands of the sport that you're exposed to 
and therefore, you know, these injuries are going to happen if you're playing in a certain position and if you play a certain way. I still don't think we should ever accept just, no, oh, these injuries are going to happen, you've got to accept it. Um, we still have to keep pushing to do whatever we can to prevent preventable injuries. But contact injuries like concussion all the time can be really tricky. Um, yeah, but there, there certainly is sometimes it's, oh, this guy again. But that happens with soft tissue injuries. Yes, so you see that a lot um, in, in certain environments where they go, oh, this guy's sore again. Oh, why isn't he training? Oh, his calf's sore. Oh, I bet it is. You know, like the the, the, the disingenuous, you know, we, we don't always give genuine appreciation for the issues that some people are, are suffering from. And I think that, yeah, if it's the same guy over and over again, that's perpetuated a lot of the time as well. And it could be something we could potentially do better. Um yeah, it's a challenging yeah. space because from a coaching point of view, if it's something that's happening due to a, a technique issue, for example, so if they're an AFL player and they're going in um, head first, for example, then they're getting a head knock, um, then you can coach that and hopefully get them out of that. But if it's just they happen to get hit in the wrong place at the – and it's, sometimes it can look like such a small contact point and all of a sudden the guy's out. Um, so it can be, yeah, it must be hard, hard, hard for coaches in general to deal with that. Hundred percent. And sometimes the concussion comes from um, hitting the ground after the contact. It, it's not always the contact that's the issue, and you sort of get bumped and you land it awkwardly, and you end up hitting your head on the ground. And how, how do you prevent that? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting space. AFL's fault by having the grounds too hard these days. <laughs> they drain too well these days, so <laughs> that's always a problem. Uh, mate, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming in and talking to me. I could sit and talk to you for hours because I love the, getting the PhDs on here and because um, you've got so much information to share and so much content to go through. But there's five questions I like to throw to everyone mm-hmm. that comes on the show, so I'm going to throw those at you now. So what advice have you got for people that are keen to get into strength and conditioning coaching uh, get, just get your hands dirty like at the end of the day like especially at certain universities on the mainland you could be there could be 200 of you going into your sport next exercise science program or there could be 60 guys doing their cert three and cert four in fitness or the asker level one but the guys who get jobs and the guys who end up being good coaches guys and girls sorry i use that term broadly i'm not just saying men i'm um, the same i'm the same yeah, but, um the, the people who get their hands dirty and actually do volunteer roles or then you know, end up working, you know, you might have an ASCA level one or you might have a university certificate, but you can't find a job that's relevant to that specific level of qualification, still being willing to go in and do personal training and still being willing to work at the, the ground level and getting your hands dirty. Um, that's that's my biggest piece of advice is don't wait until you've got your degree. Don't wait until you've got your certificate. See what you can do at the start while you're training and and learn as you, you know, while you're learning the theory, be applying it in, in the field. And that's, yeah, the, the most beneficial thing I think I did early on was um, I think in my first year of uni, I did my Cert 3 at TAFE and I got a job. I was working in a gym as a PT in my first year at uni um, and that was the, the best thing I did because I learned so much from how to communicate with people, how to, you know, as I said, but be adaptable and think on your feet in terms of, you know, I did group exercise sessions, you know, like you had to learn the choreography for some cycling sessions and did stuff that you didn't like doing and you, you hated it, got up at 5am and, and opened the gym at 5.30 and all that kind of stuff. But getting skin in the game as a term that some people use and, and getting your hands dirty, that's my, at early, as soon as you can, that's my, my advice there. 
interesting there because that vet type training gives you those more or less practical hands-on type skills where you get thrown out and doing that whereas the tertiary stuff mm. you get the, the kind of the science behind it and the theory behind it so you've got to find that that balance I think, somewhere in those yeah. two but um no that's really cool advice uh so for any people that are into sport in general so strength and conditioning tips for them um in, uh, I'm I'm not not trying to 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 sell <laughs> services, but get in touch with a coach. Like if you're interested in improving your performance, and strength and conditioning is an area where you think you don't do a lot in, or it's new to you, get in touch with a coach and do a program. You don't need to see them every single day, and you know be spending exuberant amounts of money, but doing a, a basic introduction session or an induction getting them to take you through the program once or twice and then going off on your own and and doing the program, it's it's so much better if you have some guidance as opposed to just saying, oh, this guy does that, I'll do that. Or if you see someone doing it at the gym, you know, I, I'd, I'd strongly recommend because they'll, they'll at least point you in the right direction and give you good advice and, and direction in, to in order you to then become self-sufficient in the future. But I think if you're starting to get into S&C, find yourself a coach, get a program written for you first before you try to start making things up on your own. You've got no problem with that. That's a pretty common answer. Stay <laughs> off YouTube. <laughs> Stay yeah. off the internet and st- yeah. uh, actually go and find someone that's qualified in that space. I, and and to, to be fair, like there, there are some really good online coaching services now. So like even staying off the internet isn't, isn't always what I say to people because there are some really, really good e-health and e-coaching resources out there, but you're still working with a person. Like it's behind the screen, there's still a person writing your program. There's still somebody that you could check in with via email and, and via their online portals. So that's still a person that you can work with. So yeah, if you can't get to a facility, if you're in a remote area of Australia or something like that, but you're still involved heavily in sport and want to get into it, yeah, engage with with services. Maybe we use that term. Engage with appropriate coaching services, whether they're e or face to face. Makes sense. Um, is there anything that you would have changed in your career journey so far? There's probably one. There's probably a a position that I chose not to take that I probably looking back should have taken, um, and that was in my my third year at the. At, at, at the Western Bulldogs, I got the, the the role for a high performance position came up um, and I didn't end up going for it, even though I'd had conversations about um, taking it over. But having said that, that actually gave me the opportunity to work with someone I have a huge amount of respect for and appreciation for in Chris Radford, who came in and was the, the high performance manager um, at that time. So yeah, I probably would have gone for that role in hindsight. Um, but having said that, a, a huge amount of positives came from it um i i i think i would have i should have worked with different sports so i've worked predominantly with australian rules football um up until the last two years oh sorry australian rules football and then when i moved into academia i started doing some snc with soccer um as part of the club i was working for and doing some sports science consulting um and i've never worked with a vaster range of sports probably until the last year um, now working in the private sector, I get a huge range of different athletes come through um, that we work with, and I wish I would have done something like that earlier to improve my scope and understanding of strength and conditioning across different sporting contexts. 
Okay, and that, um, it's cool. You you could have been the the premiership hero at the Western Bulldogs by the sounds of things. You could have been involved with the program there. Uh, look, I was, I was fortunate enough to, to be working in the AFL program in 2016. Um, you know, life changing experience. Um, I was working in both the the AFL and VFL program that year when they won the VFL and AFL premierships, and that was an incredible period of time. So I, w- I was very fortunate. I, I worked game day as part of my role at the Western Bulldogs. So. Um, yeah, being there at the time and, and being in the thick of it, um, I was on the bench when the final siren went, so that was something I'll, I'll never, ever forget and I'll always cherish and appreciate the people at, you know, Victoria University and Western Bulldogs for, for giving me the opportunity. But, um, yeah, could, I, I could have been a little bit different, I guess. Uh, really cool. Um, where do you see yourself or strength and conditioning coaching in general? You can answer either or or both um, in five years' time. Uh, look, in, in five years' time, I envisage that I'll probably be doing more consulting than hands-on work, I think. Uh, the demands of academia at this stage and my interest in in other areas of, of sports. So, like, I, I have a, a good interest in, in um, being involved in sports administration and sports coaching from a technical, tactical perspective, especially in soccer. Um, so, I think that as, you know, I get older and as, as my, the demands of my job increase and things like that in academia, that I'll probably be more towards the consulting end of things as opposed to to on the ground hands hands on um but i also hope to to still be able to to mentor and assist people in in their career development oh, sounds sounds really cool um now you're obviously in a space where you can access a whole lot of information but where do you go to source more information source learning is there any any good podcasts i should be tuning into any sites you go to um look i, I think good mentorship Finding someone that that you can be mentored by, um, or having a network of people, that is usually where you get quality information because you get to discuss things. You don't just have to read it and then hope that it works. You get to discuss people and you get firsthand experience on the things that they've tried that worked really well for them, and then you can investigate the evidence to support that type of process. So I think a, a good network and a good mentoring experience is is vital and can provide a really really good source of information um look i obviously read a lot from a sports science perspective i do a lot of literature reading and and things like that Um, but from a strength and conditioning perspective there's still a lot of good literature out there um you know the journal of strength and conditioning in australia does their own uh journal obviously australian strength and conditioning association so that can be really useful um but their training courses are usually ran by some of the best in the business in australia from australian strength and conditioning association um so i would i would also you leverage that relationship and become a member of of asca to to be in contact with and that that helps develop your network and your mentor mentorship opportunities as well awesome awesome mate any plugs where can people get in touch with you if they want to continue the conversation um, so my my private strength and conditioning work is all through SPR Conditioning. Um, we're a Tasmanian company. We're predominantly based in Launceston, but we've recently expanded into Hobart as well. Um, and we work with athletes of all um, sports and, and ages. So, um, yeah, private strength and conditioning work with SPR Conditioning. Um, but I'm at University of Tas- University of Tasmania, um, and I can be contacted through my um, staff profile on the, the UTAS website. Um, it's utas.edu.au, and you'll be able to find the staff profile for myself. And um, yeah, happy to be contacted or answer any questions that people might have. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for that. I'll put links in the show notes to everyone so they can they can find you and get in touch if they need to. But um, really appreciate your time. You know, it's obviously flat out start of start of the school year again. Everyone's everyone's busy. Um, so I appreciate you coming in and talking to me today. Thanks, Nathan. No, excellent, Brent. Thanks for the opportunity.